Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. would turn in your Bibles. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 23, um, but also if you want to stick your thumb over in uh, Matthew chapter 26, um, as they've been doing through this series, they've been, as we've been going verse by verse through Psalm 23, we've also partnering it up with another passage just to kind of give it enlightenment and um, open it up a little bit. And so we're going to be focusing uh, this morning on Psalm 23, verse 5. That's where I'm going to begin reading. So hear the word of the Lord. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And if you would jump to Matthew 26, I'm going to read verse 20, and then we're going to jump down to verse 26. It says this, When it was evening, evening he reclined at, the ta- reclined at the table with the twelve. Down to verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we come to your word humbly. We come to it confidently, knowing it is your word. It is the word of God. It is breathed out, inspired by you, which means that it is infallible. It will never be proven wrong. It is inerrant. It has no error. And so when we come to your word, Lord, we know that we should be transformed because it is from you to us. And so, Lord, open our hearts and minds that we might clearly see your son Jesus and the beauty of your gospel this morning. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Willie and Jonathan and Dave, they've been doing a series called He Restores My Soul. First five verse through Psalm 23, which is kind of unusual. We normally, a psalm like this, maybe do it in one big chunk or maybe a two-part series. I think I did, I preached it at one point. But going through verse by verse really begins to open up the depth of richness that's in this psalm and it's a series about restoration and very fitting especially in light of the events of the last year and a half right like I don't I mean there's a lot of people I've talked to and most of them have this sense of man yeah I could use some restoring and what Dave and these guys have been talking about is not just any restoring like you might get from an afternoon nap or a vacation, as good as it might be. 
Though very often I come home from a vacation feeling like I need a vacation from the vacation. But a real restoring of soul and heart. And what a great place to, to seek that here in Psalm 23. Because the one place you can find genuine, true restoration in your heart is from a Lord who would be your shepherd. Well, as they've made their way through this psalm in the first, verse, first four verses, excuse me, I don't know if you noticed, but there's movement. He talks about being led, the shepherd leading to green pastures, leading to still waters. And then, verse 4, you see him traveling, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. There's a journey going on. And he makes you wonder, why? Why does God do this? Why does God lead us through to, to green pastures? Why would he lead us to still waters? Why would he lead us into good times and times of plenty? And why? We ask this one more often. Why would he lead us through valleys of shadows and death? Well, I think what you see in this, this chapter is really interesting because you have a journey, you have movement, and then in verse 5 and 6, the journey stops, and you, and you arrive at a destination. You arrive at a table, and you arrive at a house, the house of the Lord. Now, why does God lead us through these pastures? Why does he lead us on these journeys? Why is God leading you in your life the way he is? Because he wants you to end up somewhere. He wants you to end up at his table and in his house. And so it's not just, we're going to focus on this table. Next week, it'll be this last verse six. But here we see a table. But it's not just any table. It is a table that God himself sets before him. And so just as maybe as a spoiler, because David, as we know, foreshadowed, not, he wasn't just a king, but he foreshadowed a coming king, a great king, whose kingdom would be established forever. And, it's, and in this verse here, we see a table being foreshadowed as well, a greater table and a greater feast that's to come. And so this morning, I want y'all to know that it's at this table, the table of the Lord, that we find the true source of full restoration. And God is leading us and guiding us on paths through darkness at times so that we might find the table. And there's four things that he lays out that we see about this table. And so let's, I want to break those down for you. Okay, and the first thing we see about this table is that it is a table for the enjoyment of fellowship. It's a table for the enjoyment of fellowship. It says, he sets a table before me. Now, back then, like today, 
when you have a meal with somebody, it's not just about the food. Because if it's just about the food, you just go to the drive-thru. And you get your bag and your soda and you just eat. But when you get together with someone, when you say something like, hey, let's grab coffee. It's not about the coffee. When you say, hey, let's grab lunch. Or, hey, we would love for y'all to come for dinner. It's about relationship. And so when you see the great shepherd setting a table for a feast, it's an invitation to relationship. Now, there's something really striking about this, though. Because what you see here is a shepherd setting a table, table for food, for dinner, so to speak, for his sheep. Now, we normally think of sheep as like these cute little cuddly things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, when I was growing up, when I, there was a picture at the back of the church and it was a picture of Jesus, and he had like a white dress on, and he had like little baby, like a little baby sheep around his, on, around his shoulders, and he's these cute little fluffy things out there. But in real life, if you've seen a real sheep, if you've, been, if you've encountered one, they're smelly, they're dirty, they're, they're animals. So who in their right mind sets a table for, or who, who brings the sheep to the dinner table? It's the type of thing kids get in trouble for. So it's remarkable here that as David, he kind of shifts metaphors where he's talking about the great shepherd who leads and guides and protects and all these things. And then he says this great shepherd is going to shift now. He's going to become my host. You know, for us, we think about meals and dinner and, and meals like that. And it does. It's about relationship. But in the ancient world, meals and feasts had a huge significance. Um, one author put it this way, a guy named Sam Storms. He said, to be God's guest for dinner was more than a casual encounter. To eat and drink at somebody's table forged a bond of loyalty and love. And often sealed a covenant between the parties involved. And so what David's saying is, God is inviting us into a special relationship as he sets a table before us. And so what David is saying is, the great shepherd, God himself, Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, is working to prepare a feast for you. For you. But in other words, God is welcoming you into relationship. Like what we see when Jesus calling out to the churches that they would come back to their first love. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and, and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. But I don't know about you guys. That's a hard Thing to think about for God for me like I can imagine like, I don't have a hard time thinking of God as like this this great shepherd or, you know this lawgiver or whatever but that God would really actually want to spend time with me I don't know I'm reading a, a really fantastic book by a guy named Dane Ortland. it's called 
um, gentle and lowly. And he, he echoes this sentiment. He says this, we naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. Or we picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition. The founder of our mission, Jack Miller, used to ask people, if God had a facial expression, what would it be towards you? Disgust? Anger? Frustration? Exasperation? And he goes on to say, this is why we need a Bible. Because our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. Because I think, if I was dealing with me, it's over. See, the thing is, the, the, the Bible over and over and over and over again gives us the heart and character of God as, as, as compassionate and loving and desiring to be in relationship with us in spite of our sin, in our sin and affirmities. And so here in this one word, God setting a table before him. We see that Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, holy righteous one, the God Almighty, invites you to join him for dinner. What's an amazing truth. We see the same character in Jesus. We see the heart of God flow out as he lived his life. We see... In Luke chapter 5, it says, in verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus had an answer. He said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What David is showing us, he's opening up and showing us the heart of God. That no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been, no matter how horrible the things you may have done or doing, he invites you to the table. Amen, let's close in prayer. Just kidding. And I could. That's a sermon. But there's more here. So it's a table for the enjoyment of fellowship, but it's also a table for the celebration of victory. He says, he sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, at first glance when you see this, it seems like what he just said in verse 4, which is if you're going through the valley of shadow of death and darkness, God is with us. So true. And his rod and his staff, they comfort us, right? And so it sounds like he's kind of going along with that idea. And he very well may be, but I tend to think, no. Let me ask, because who in their, who in their right mind sets a dinner table 
in the presence of real enemies. It's a stupid thing to do. Reminds me, there's a, a, um, a little instance in the story of The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien. It's in both the book and the movie. So if you haven't read it, or if you hadn't seen the movie, you've, you've seen this situation. But the story is like this. There's little hobbits, these little halflings, and um, this one, his name's Frodo, and he comes into possession of this ring, and this ring turns out to be this ring of power that is forged by the dark lord uh, Sauron, this evil being. And when it's found out that Frodo has this, the dark lord sends after him these wraiths, these undead creatures to come kill him and take the ring. And so they go on the run, him and three other hobbits and a guy named, and a guy named Aragorn. And as they're on the journey, two of the hobbits, Merry and Pippin, stop and start to prepare a meal. And Aragorn's like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're making breakfast. And Aragorn says, we've already had breakfast. They say, oh, but it's second breakfast. Because hobbits had like 10 meals a day. But you don't make second breakfast when you're on the run from the dark lord evil Sauron. You don't do that. So what's happening here? Okay, this isn't just saying that God prepares us, gives us provision and stuff while we're in darkness and there's enemies around. What he's saying is that this is in fact a symbolic table of victory and celebration. See, in, in ancient times, when a, bat, when, a, when a battle was won, a kingdom had victory over another, the tables were set. And a victory feast would be held very often right in front of, in the presence of the enemies. See, this table is a declaration of victory. And how can you have dinner in front of your enemies when they're defeated? So David is saying that there's nothing they can do to ultimately defeat us now. It is done. The, the, the war is won. Victory has been accomplished. It is time to celebrate. Now, David is not, not stupid. He knows we still feel the presence of very real enemies in our lives, and they may not be people shooting arrows at us or shooting bullets at us. But we have enemies. We face struggles. We face our own sin and struggles in our own lives. We, we face Struggles in our relationships. We, we face struggles in this world. We have enemies. They are very real. David's not pretending like they're not. He's saying even though our enemies are present, very often felt, God is victor. He has won. It is done. As Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. What's interesting, too, is the, the, the verb he uses here about setting this table. In the Hebrew, it's an imperfect, which means uh, that it should be translated something like, he has already set a table before us. It's done. It's already set. The victory table is laid out, and it, and it points to the great victory we will see 
when it's done. And so, we can claim like with Paul in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And this table points to a great celebration. It was prophesied in Isaiah, and we see it lived out in in Revelation. When it talks about, in in Isaiah uh, 25, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that has cast across all peoples, the veil that has spread across nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. The Lord has spoken. The victory has been won. And so it's a table of fellowship. It's a table celebrating victory. But there's more. It's also a table of anointing, anointing to position, a table of anointing to position. He says, he anoints my head with oil. He anoints my head with oil. Now, we don't anoint each other like they used to. That's just not, in the ancient world, it's a very common practice. So when I think of uh, anointing, I can't help but think of the the Nickelodeon network. Has anybody seen that? There's this one show on there, I don't even know what it's called, where they dump slime on each other for some reason. So I'm thinking, that's the picture that comes to mind when I think of anointing. Uh, We just don't do a lot of that these days. But in the ancient world, it's actually very common. It happened all the time. And so real quickly, let me just kind of run down to some of the areas, how anointing was used. Like, for example, one area was, it was just simply an act of courtesy or hospitality towards a guest. So, for example, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus is having dinner at a Pharisee's house, and it says a woman comes in, who, by the way, it makes sure you know she's a sinner, and she comes in, and she has a priceless jar of alabaster oil, which costs tons of money, and it says she broke it and, and anointed the head of Jesus, showing him honor and love. And, and the Pharisees at the house were like, why, why would you let her waste that? And he's like, you guys didn't even wash my feet, much less anoint my head. So it was, this, it was this custom of honoring and respecting somebody. But it was also had more formal uses. Very often it was used in when they would dedicate their children. It was also used in the coronation of kings, like we see with David. But also, when the, when the high priests were installed, they would be anointed to this position of honor and, and service. And so, when David says, he anoints my head with oil, he's saying that God is conferring on him a special call, a symbolic sign of God's presence, honor bestowed, and also given a position of purpose giving him, saying, I want to use you. I need you. And David knew something about anointing, didn't he? 
So if you, if you look in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, so David had been pursued by King Saul. They were, he was trying to kill him all those, time, all those years. And he had been on the run, fleeing for his life. And finally, King Saul had been defeated and had been killed in battle. And David, what does he do? He calls his son Mephibosheth. And he invites him to the table. And David knew, because he had been the kid, when his brothers were brought in to be anointed, when, when Samuel was called to anoint a new king, you had his seven brothers laid out there, or standing there, and Samuel went before every one of them, and God said, no, not him, no, not him, no, not him. Not. And he got to the end, there was no more sons. And Samuel was like, you got any more sons? <laughs> we're, out of, we're out of sons here. And he says, well, he probably sheepishly said this, you know, like, well, we kind of do. So we, we, there's one out in the field with the animals, with the sheep. Can't be him. Anybody but him. And, and Samuel says, well, nobody sits, nobody eats until he comes in. And he brings him in. And God says, this is the man, the man after my own heart. And he anoints him. But David knew what it felt like to be the guy who people said, oh, it wouldn't be him. It couldn't be him. God can't use him. Do you ever feel like that? God can't use me. But we're told in 1 John chapter 2 that we are in fact, as God's people, anointed by the Holy Spirit. We're given the place of honor as sons and daughters. And that we are also anointed as a kingdom, a nation of priests, and given great purpose. God wants to use you. And, and you might say, I, I don't, how could God use me? I don't have anything to give. And that's where he leads into this. So we see that it's a table of fellowship, a table of celebrating victory and anointing a position, but... Lastly, we see it's a table to the calling of ministry. A table to the calling of ministry. He says, my cup overflows. Again, like he did before in the earlier verses of this psalm, he's pointing to God's provision in abundance. And it's true. Okay? But if David was trying to say what he said in verse 1, that I have nothing lacking, I have all that I need, if he was trying to say that, he would say, my cup is full. But instead, he says, my cup overflows. So yeah, it's an abundance of provision, but it's a provision not just to the brim, not just all that we need, but an overflow. And an outflow, here's the thing, towards others. This is the purpose. God isn't just leading us and, and guiding us so that we can come to this table just for us. He's calling us to come find restoration and an overflow abundance of blessing so that we might fill out in blessing to other people. Yeah, that part. Yeah, right there. Yeah. 
But most of us tend to just live in scarcity. Scarcity. Like what happens when people begin to have the perception of scarcity? Well, I can I think of one particular uh, illustration or I you know when this ha- example of when this happened. If y'all remember when COVID nineteen hit, somewhere out there, the idea got floated that somehow we're not going to have enough toilet paper. What? Who thought that up? I mean, you know, when there's a hurricane coming, you know, people grab milk, batteries, water. I get it. But why are people freaking out about toilet paper? There's a funny picture. My, a friend of my brother up in Montana sent him. Um, and uh, so this guy's ready for COVID-19. He's got his pile of toilet paper, his rifle pistol and a mask he's ready to go that's what we do when we live in a perception we live our lives with this idea of scarcity like I don't have enough or I got just enough and what David is saying here is no your God he he owns cattle on a thousand hills he, God creates things. I've always said, I've always thought about the, the, uh, the, the story of um, Jack and the Beanstalk. Remember that story? And in Jack and the Beanstalk, you know, he goes up and he takes some gold and takes some different things, right? And then he got smart. He goes up and he steals the magic hen that can lay golden eggs, Right? That is the way to go because it constantly gives, you know? And that, but here's the thing. When we talk about God's abundance and when David says, my cup overflows, he knows there is no end. There is no bottom in the resources of God for you. Now, I'll give you an example of this. What about your life? I mean, for a lot of people, they're lucky to make it to like 80 years. And so a lot of us have a lot shorter lives than that. And so very often we have this idea of scarcity. And so I'm going to live my life based on this idea that days and minutes and hours are scarce in my life. And so I better get the best I can out of it. But then you see somebody, let's for example, Jim Elliott him and some other missionaries realized that this life ain't it that there is a a life of eternity and joy and bliss and and they went south america to reach an unreached uh group of indians and were speared to death and the world looks at that and says what a waste They should have stayed in suburbia. They should have stayed safe. But Jim knew. And he he made a quote before his death. He said, he is no fool who gives away which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. He lived in abundance. He knew 
that this life was nothing compared to the life of eternity promised to them. And when Amanda and I were weighing whether we would take the risk and go to another country and leave family, leave home, leave comforts to try to minister to people in Ireland, we had to ask that question. What is our life? What does it mean? And it might be your finances. It might be God asking you, do you live in a, a, a world of scarcity? Are you trying to hoard your toilet paper? Are you trying to make sure you have that 401k? Are you trying to do these things? Or maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your res other resources, what it might be. Here's, a, here's another question. Maybe you're asking the question, all I've got is brokenness. I know a few of you in here do. All I've got is hurt and brokenness in my life. And let me tell you, our God is the God who raises dry bones. Our God is the God of resurrection and restoration. And he can use even the, the hardest places of your life in amazing ways. And as I mentioned, you know, David knew what this meant. David knew what it meant to be somebody who didn't belong on the table. And we, we live our lives and, and, and we think, I don't belong. I've told the story when I became a Christian, I, you know, I, uh, I stopped cussing and smoking and doing all these kind of things. And then, um, then I started, you know, I was going to have to become a good Christian, you know. But then I started reading the Bible and there was all these heart issues then that I needed to start dealing. And I started, started to realize, man, I am a messed up dude. And I look around and all the other Christians look like they're doing pretty well. And I started feeling like kind of a second class Christian. And so that I really had this idea that one day I'd go to heaven. I knew I was going to go to heaven. I knew I was forgiven. I was going to go to heaven. But I felt like I was going to slip in through the gates of heaven, like as they closed. And I was going to be like hiding behind the garbage cans in heaven because I really like stow away in heaven because I really didn't belong. But David knew what it was like to be the unlikely one. And so when he called Mephibosheth to his table, the son of an enemy, somebody who was outcast from society, and he invites him to his table, he knew that is my heart, the heart of my Savior, Jesus. That is the heart of God. See, God invites you to his table, not to sit down at the end, not to hide behind the garbage cans, he invites you to a place of honor and privilege so that we might celebrate together his great victory for us. And the fact is, none of us belong here. Because this table of David, it pointed to a greater table. A table that would be instituted by Jesus the hours before his death and betrayal when he would sit with his disciples and break bread and drink wine, celebrating a victory to come. And that is a free gift. You cannot earn a place at this table. 
in part because it's free. It's a gift. Like we see in Isaiah 5, 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. That is the free offer of the gospel. God says, come, sit with me. Let us celebrate together. So when we come to this table, we see it's a place of peace with God, a place of victory, position and calling, ultimate restoration. And so this morning, have you received Jesus? Have you recognized your brokenness and sin? Have you come to him and receiving the fact that he lived a perfect life you could never live? He died a death on behalf of you, a death you perfectly deserved so that you could come and be in perfect fellowship with him at the table. Do so today. And the rest of us, do you recognize the honor and glory of the position in which we have been anointed and the, the blessing to be a blessing to others, that our lives might spill out in blessing into others' lives? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this picture that David gives us of a table, a table set by the great shepherd, the sheep, and Lord, as we come and we celebrate the Lord's table, I pray that it might become communion, as we call it. That we come and we come in faith that you would meet us here in fellowship. And Lord, that we might celebrate the victory won, Lord. But that also we might stand and sit in our position of honor and service so that we might be a blessing to others. And so, Lord, meet us here at this table. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.